Hello and welcome to the Scottish National Podcast. I know that's a name, Stevie Likes, so that'll do. And uh, we're here to discuss the trials and tribulations of the Scottish National Team. And with us, like I said, we've got Stevie Greve. Stevie, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, I'm all right. Aye. You been up to much? Um, I've actually just sat and done like an analysis of uh, some of our games at the weekend, so it's been nice. I put one of our goals on Twitter because I thought it was a nice goal, so aye, it's been a, a relatively nice start to the day. Good, 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 good. So, in the last few days, the Scotland squad's been named and our next two games coming up before we probably crash out with some sort of glorious failure is uh, away to Lithuania and at home in Malta. Looking at the squad, I mean, it's it's not really that hard to guess about 80% of any Gordon Shacken squad because he does very much have a, well, it seems like he's sometimes got a bit of a, a jobs for the boys mentality here. And um, once again, maybe the last time was a bit early, but everybody was clamouring for Callum McGregor to be in this squad, but he's missed out even after Tom Kearney is pulled out injured. Strack and instead opted to call up James Morrison. Um, so, well, what do you make of that? And, and indeed, the squad as a whole. And it seems a bit contradictory that McGregor's not in it, given Strachan has been quoted saying that, you know, that it's a huge positive impact on Scottish football that Celtic are in the Champions League and then he doesn't bother calling up one of those Scottish Champions League players. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you make of that? I think the biggest thing for me is that Strachan always goes on about developing a club mentality. So if he has a core group of maybe 18 or 20 guys who he can call upon, no matter how well or badly that they're playing at club level or for Scotland, that they, they always seem to be in the squad because they're part of his team, you could say. So yeah. I think if somebody drops out of the squad, he's going to call from that pool of players. He's not really going to reach outside it, which is a wee bit unfortunate because I think I, I just went online because it's something I complain about all the time just now about Scottish football is the average age of the squad and if we're calling up James uh, James Morrison who's 31 and Callum McGregor I think is 24 the average age is generally between 28 and a half and 29 and a half on the average Scotland squad and that's including Ollie Burke in it who's 20 and drops it down massively so we already have a problem that if you look at Craig Gordon and David Marshall who are 34 and 32 our goalkeepers are old. Christoph Berra, Gordon Greer, 32, 36. So if guys like them are in the squad, then it's not exactly a young team. Now, I know Gordon Greer's not in the squad, but he not, he gets called up if somebody pulls out or if somebody's struggling. So but Christoph Berra, 32. Russell Martin, what, 31 years old. So we've got so many guys who are past their peak, who have failed previously to qualify for anything, who are now not at the level that they were three years ago when we, when we were looking reasonably good, drawing the likes of Poland and chucking away two wins against them because of Strachan's bad substitutions. But for me, Callum McGregor was a stick-on. A guy who can do multiple roles, lovely balance, technically very good. Um, he started contributing in the final third a little bit more. And I think when, when you look at the freshness he might have been able to bring, as much as I like James Morrison, he's past peak age and we need to be looking for who the next guys to come through. And I think 24 is not even particularly young. I mean, he's got six years at the national team in front of him at his, at his best level, you could say. So I think we need to be bringing these guys in, particularly in games where it's like Lithuania and Malta, where we've already drawn with Lithuania. We were lucky to get the win against Malta because we were 1-0 up. The referee made a very sceptical decision which led to a red card and a goal for Scotland and then we went on to win 5-1 but I think when you look at the game as a whole Scotland never really deserved to get anything out of it and I think the squad that you look in front of you likes a Snodgrass no been playing really for West Ham I think he's now out on loan somewhere Chris Martin for me will never do it 
Stephen Naismith, who's who's a good player, is obviously. I don't think he's getting as much game time as he needs to be. And then you look at the midfield, like Darren Fletcher, still a good player, but he's the wrong side of thirty. You look at the the defender, defensive players, like even Stephen Whitaker's just moved back up to Hibs, wrong side of thirty. So the squad is in drastic need of freshening up. There are young players available to do it. I think Ryan Christie would have been one that I would have selected. I would definitely have had Ollie Burke in the squad purely for his youth. Like I, I know he hasn't had many games for Leipzig and he's just moved to West Brom, which will maybe re-energise him. But we're, we're looking at players who, are they the future of the national team? Because I don't think we're going to qualify. Lithuania and Malta are two games that we should be winning. And I think if you put a few younger guys in there and give them the opportunity to go and win that game, then I think it boosts the depth of the squad that we have. And I think when you look through the squad, ones I would be excited about would be Ryan Fraser. I think he's done all right for when he has played for Bournemouth. I remember him coming on against Arsenal, changing the game. Matt Phillips, I think, is somebody who's got a wee bit of excitement because he's got a bit of pace there. But you look through that squad and you look at it and you go, nice guys, decent players. A lot of them have failed with the national team previously. And Stuart Armstrong, as we saw in, in the England game, did really, really well. So I think Brendan Rodgers has actually helped the national team. And if we'd called up Callum McGregor, then that would have been a positive for me. I mean, what you're saying about the age of the squad there is interesting because I've thought for a while now that when you look at the options, not not even the squad, but just the options that could have been in the squad, that other than, say, certain midfield positions and league efforts up front, there seems to be a big gap between young prospects that are maybe between 18 and 22, 23, right? Or not even 23, probably 21, actually. But young prospects and then veterans that are like 29, 30. There's very little in terms of people that are actually in their peak. And I wrote about uh, I wrote about this for WFI a wee bit in terms of I was specifically looking at the defence. And when you look at our central defensive option, you know, you've either got your, like you said, your, your Beres, like Mulgrew and stuff like that, you know, who are like all on the wrong side of 30. Or you've got really young arguably risky options like John Souter or Liam Lindsay you know those sort of players we don't have a centre yeah. back in, in their peak and that, that should be Grant Hanley but it's not because he's repeatedly shown at international level be it through a lack of ability I, I, I'd, I'd say his struggles are maybe mostly down to mentality like I, I think he lets it get to him a bit much and he almost tries too hard I mean the amount that he, he ends up just getting too touch tight and then he gets spun you know and um, when, when you compare that with his admiration for players like Colin Hendry and stuff I, I think I think he just he tries too hard arguably but the point is is that all over the pitch we don't have players and it's the same with goalkeeper as well we don't have anybody that's actually at peak age they're either arguably too young or they're too old and not there to future-proof the team so why do you think that is do you, do you think that's maybe partly down to just kind of coincidence like that's just the way it happens sometimes or do you think that maybe the older generation so again your Fletchers your Browns and that have they been used too long and then we haven't been able to blood in anybody else or I mean what, what's your take on that like in Scottish club football, we don't really have a process for understanding what the next three years will look like. Um, there's always this short term of, right, we need to go for it. We need to pick the guys who are ready. And then once they fail, there's nothing behind it. Like you look at Aye. Scottish Premier League average age, St Johnston's average age is 28 and Aberdeen's was 29. It'll be younger now. But when you look at the way Scottish football and the Scottish society is, we try to pick people who we feel are are really experienced and I think experience and failure is much 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 more counterproductive than 
guys who have got no experience and are just going to go for it and, and throw themselves into whatever the challenges and go in with, with a wee bit of youthful exuberance, I suppose you could say. And I think when you look through the whole Scotland squad, Grant Hanley was good when he was 21, 22, and he was just playing kind of free and, and working well with Russell Martin, who was maybe 27, 28 at the time, who was at a good age. Now, Grant Hanley's had a few setbacks, a few bad experiences in his career, and maybe suffered a little bit from criticism. And now you I agreed, at, yeah. when you look at him now at 25 years old, there's maybe a level of caution or indecision he's got because of previous experience. So I think when you look through the whole Scotland squad, if you take our two highest profile central midfielders, Scott Brown and Dan Fletcher, 32 and 33 years old, has there really been a process for players coming in behind them? You could you could argue a little bit about James MacArthur coming in behind them. Um, you could argue a little bit about Barry Bannon coming in behind them, but MacArthur is now, what, 28, 29? Barry Bannon's 27, so who's coming in behind them? Like, if they're supposed to be the next ones to, to take the places, so if Darren Fletcher isn't there and you replace him Barry Bannon, if, if James MacArthur replaces Scott Brown, who obviously retired for a few games and came back, which I think is great because we need him, who's the ones coming in th- through behind? We've only really got John McGinn in the squad. John McGinn's 22. So even then, John McGinn's not that young. Like he's a couple of years away from from what I would consider your prime years between 22 and 28. Um, I don't buy into the old idea that you're in your prime between 26 and 30. I think you may be at your prime in terms of understanding the game, but physically the game has changed. So I, therefore, I think that your your peak years are maybe slightly younger than what they were 15 years ago. So I don't think that there's a, a clear indication in the national team of just now we have a 32-year-old, right? We need a 28-year-old. Okay, we need a 24-year-old and we need a 20-year-old. So who do we identify or which batches of players do we identify for the next cycle, the next World Cup qualifying cycle, which is obviously four years, which encompasses uh, the Euros? So you're going to do a European Championship qualifying cycle, then you're going to do a World Cup qualifying cycle. That's going to take four years. So if somebody goes between 28 and 32 in that time, there will come a point maybe after the Euros that we need something new for the World Cup cycle. And then once somebody else gets past that age, then we're rolling it every two to four years so that we start recycling players who are at peak age. But I don't think that we've got the most the most talented group of players in Europe. I think that would be fair to say. And I think because we don't identify young enough, who will be the next ones into it? And it's obviously good that we've got John McGinn coming through in the squad, Ollie Burke coming through in the squad, but... We don't have any young defenders coming. We don't have any young goalkeepers being put forward. We don't seem to have any young fullbacks being put forward at right back because we've got about eight left backs. We're fantastic for there. <laughs> I think we're probably so oversubscribed for left backs that we need to start looking at ways to convert maybe Kieran Tierney to play in centre half and Barry Douglas to find a way in the squad to play as like a I don't know as a left winger or something. I don't know because we've got so many we could probably make a decent enough team at left backs, but. At right back, we've got Stephen Whitaker and Akechi Anya. Anya's 29. He's renowned for his pace. Well, his pace is going to be gone soon, so that's not going to help you in a couple of years. I think Stephen Kingsley, again, on our kind of left-sided centre-back. So we've got some young players, but do we have enough where we can go, right, we're going to move these guys? I think in terms of peak age, who do we actually have in the squad? Barry Bannon at 27, peak age. Um, Matt Ritchie, 27, peak age. James Forrest, 26. He feels like he's been... I still feel like people act like he's a young player, but he's 26. Lee Griffiths is 27. Chris Martin is 28, in my opinion, nowhere near good enough. So we only have a handful of players who are in the age where 
they can make the difference at their best. They've got some experienced guys ahead of them, but no really any youth coming through behind. And I think this, this to me, is probably the most disappointing World Cup and European Championship qualifying cycle because I think Strachan got some substitutions wrong, and particularly away to Poland when we were 2 1 up. He put on Chris Martin when it was clear we needed runners into the space rather than a target man to keep the ball in their half and for somebody to lose it or for us to be exposed trying to support within our own half rather than stretch the game into the channels and run beyond. We needed somebody quick to get in behind. Strachan made a bad, bad sub in that game. I think our game management at home to Poland was obviously poor and that's why it got back to 2-2. So if you look at those two results, we could have done better. I think when you look at Strachan's team selection away to Ireland, it was a team unsure if, if they were going to win or try to draw. Or they looked really, really unsure and we were lucky to scrape a 1-1. I think, in that game. So, Strachan, in my opinion, would have a lot to answer for about the decisions that he's made, um, the substitutions that he was made, the team selection and the tactics that he's made, because I think at the start, I was a big, big, big Gordon Strachan fan. I wanted him to be the manager. I thought he was going to be the best that we could have. And for a period of two years, he was. He was fantastic. But then you get to the stage where the squad needs regenerated. He needs to be a bit more ruthless with some players who are either no performing or past peak age and look at where the next players are coming through but I think being the Scotland manager is probably an, an unenviable task because of the expectation from the country but also the, the the quality players that we have and as much as I think that they're good they are they need to be a a real real solid team with a really top coach who can put in the best tactical plan um, and I'm not really sure that Scotland have shown that in the last three years. Uh, it's, it's interesting like looking at maybe who who could the next manager be and then you've got uh, when you look at the fan base I think I don't think this will necessarily impact on the decision of who the next manager is but I know a lot of them are very wary about the idea of a foreign coach for example ever since Bertie Fox well, which is which is crap they need to get over it that was a long long time ago and you look at countries like uh, I think you mentioned this recently on a podcast that you know like Iceland for example that, that would happily use uh, a foreign coach to come in and then because basically it's better than any domestic options they've got and then when you look at the domestic options that we've got they're a mix between dinosaurs basically you know just completely completely unsuitable to what we need past it and just completely pointless appointments or there is a few younger coaches but then really at this stage in their career would they really want to take the job so we're talking people like Derek McInnes I mean surely his career path in his mind would be at least another year at Aberdeen try and build on what he's already built up there and then probably get a decent job down south I mean I think part of the reason he didn't take the Sunderland job was that that's the definition of a poison chalice it seems and there was no guarantee he would even keep his job beyond a few weeks because there was talk of new ownership coming in and what you were saying about players in their in their prime there I think it's well not, not just in their prime but like young players and also players in their prime I think it's interesting that We've got quite a few that have either been completely bypassed until recently. So look at Lee Griffiths. I mean, how how long should he really have been our starting striker? And it, it feels like he's only been that for about two games, which is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, the amount that we sort of flipped between Chris Martin and Stephen Fletcher, which never worked, but we kept going between them anyway. And then Griffiths would be an impact. So, I mean, this, this is why his goal-scoring record was so bad. You know, you look at Griffiths, it's not like, you know, before the England game, it was like 12 or 13 caps, no goals. So because he kept getting 10 minutes off the bench 
uh, at the time when we'd just be lumping the ball up anyway. So, I mean, what's what's Lee Griffiths at like five foot seven going to do with that? You know, nothing. But um, so he's only recently getting starts. And then you look at players like you mentioned McGinn. Uh, yeah, he's only twenty two, but he's now he's just embarking in his what first season in the top flight in Scotland. And then somebody like. Barry Bannon, who I remember talking to you on Twitter ages and ages ago about Barry Bannon, that, and I think you said that he's basically been a player that throughout his career, he's kind of consistently made the wrong choice in terms of the club that he goes to. He keeps joining clubs that don't necessarily suit his style of play. So you look at when he went to Palace, for example, um, at the time it just didn't suit what is basically a, a diminutive playmaker. The more I've seen him in recent years, uh, he is still, he's, he's doing quite well at Sheffield Wednesday, but when you look at his age, that's probably the first club that he's had stability at. He's got this kind of, as much as when he was quite young, when he was 22, 23, you look at him and go, oh, bloody hell, that's, that's how he's Spaniard we've got there, you know. But the older he's got, the more, I would say, anglicised his games become. You know, he starts playing these like ridiculous Hollywood balls and stuff like that, and he keeps diving into tackles and stuff. And he, you wonder what happened to this wee player, you know. And if there was a bit a bit more luck, he would have maybe made some smarter moves when he was younger. And then that could have been a guy that was pushing... 50, 60 caps for us, you know, that, that maybe would have gave us a bit of craft in midfield, but we've not had that. But moving on, against England, you know, Strachan lined up his team with, you know, three central defenders, uh, three to back, five to back, wherever you want to put it, with a degree of success. I mean, this meant that Tierney, for example, could play on the left of a three. Um, you had Robertson at left wing back. You had... Anya at right wing back, which I think is probably his natural position. And yeah, did have a degree of success. Can you see him replicating that against Lithuania? Or do you think that was just a one-off to counter what he's seen as a very strong opponent in England? Yeah, so I think Strachan's picked kind of a 5-4-1, 3-4-3 kind of shape because I think there's a precedent set in the Euros by stopping guys like Robert Lewandowski by using three centre-backs and kind of just making sure he's always doubled up. Whereas I think Harry Kane against the two Scotland centre-backs that we could have gone with, Harry Kane would have lost them and scored. So I think playing with three at the back was a sensible option just to kind of restrict the amount of space and angles he could attack the ball from. But when we also look back at kind of Euro 2016, Iceland beating England, already showed that England cannot break down a low block because either the coaching isn't good enough to break the low block down or the or the players are not patient enough or they're no used to playing with such a restricted amount of space in front of somebody's goal. And I know I know a lot of teams in the Premier League will play in a low block and millions of balls will go in the box and there'll be loads of crosses and loads of loose balls and things like that. But at international level, you look at different teams set up from Spain break down low blocks all the time and make it look relatively easy because the players are a little bit more intricate and the positions that they take up are better. Whereas in England, I think there's more about get it wide, run at people, try and pass it over the top. There's no really the the combinations to play quickly or really intricately between the lines. And I think it was the right game plan for Scotland. But would they do that long term against Lithuania and Malta? No. I don't think so. I think playing with three at the back against Lithuania might be fine, um, depending on if they play with one or two up. If they play two up, we can go two man for man and one spare. Um, if they play with one up, then it'll be easier to bring the ball out from the back through the channels, which if Kieran Tierney was to be the left-sided centre-half, I think that that would suit him because he's good on the ball and he'll help us break lines and things like that. So um, I don't think it's something that they'll do long-term. I think it's something that is interesting that they could do it. I don't think that if we're going to play against Lithuania, 
we should be playing with five out and out defenders if we're going to do it. I think if we're going to do it, then we need no more than no more than two defenders or three defenders. So, um, depending on the profiles of the players, it's going to be interesting to see how we approach it because we have to beat Lithuania. Like, if we're going to qualify, they need six points from these games. But more important, there needs to be a level of conf- uh, confidence that comes from it by scoring two or three goals against one of them. And I know, obviously, playing against Malta should be a win. And obviously, we're at home. But going away to Lithuania is not going to be easy. I think they already drew at home against Slovenia, who are a good team. We managed to beat them and, and played really well against them. So I think, I think that if we're all out attacking, we really go for it and we play as many kind of attack-minded players as possible, then we would be good. I mean, if, if we were to take the team, then if Stephen Whitaker was to play right-back, I'd prefer him to Akechi Anya, because I'm, I've never been a big fan of Akechi Anya. I think he's a liability in possession. He's all right in transitions. He's, he's relatively quick, but I would feel a lot more comfortable either playing Stevie Whitaker as a right-back um, than Akechi Anya. I know I'm probably going to criticise for that, but it's just when I watch a game, and I, I never feel confident that Akechi Anya is going to be good enough. Um, I know he's done all right, but um, again, personal preference, I'm not a fan. If we were to play kind of a Celtic-style 4-3-3 with Scott Brown just sitting, Stuart Armstrong going box to box and then somebody more creative next to the two of them, maybe it would be, I don't know, maybe a John McGinn come into it because he's got a decent range of passing, he's relatively strong. Or if James Morrison comes into the squad, then, then fine, I don't mind him, he's relatively creative, but I want somebody who's going to be less cautious and try and get themselves in the box and, and do some damage if it's if it's Matt Phillips and Matt Ritchie on the sides then again I'm, I'm happy with that I just I don't want to see Chris Martin anywhere near the field um, <laughs> if we have to bring on honestly if we if we have to bring on a big target man then Lee Griffiths has to stay on and I'd rather we go with Stephen Fletcher but I think if we look back to Strachan's good performances like away to Croatia we've always done it with a more mobile link type of striker who's good with the ball at his feet who can turn who's no a target for the centre-backs because in Scotland we have the mentality of there's a big guy up there, let's get the ball to him, he'll win it, he'll flick it on, he'll hold it up there, we'll bypass the midfield. Andy, Andy Carroll, aye, shell it to the big man just because he's there. And I think just because the guy is there, we do it all the time, even when it's no on and it's no necessary and we could break the lines with two better passes and get the big guy in the box. We don't do that. We try to play direct into the striker when there's no need and I think... As long as Chris Martin is near on the field, we don't do that. If Stephen, if Stephen Fletcher is on the field, then we're still going to do it. So if we're going to play kind of a variation of a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3, then I would be having Naismith with Lee Griffiths. And we we'll have two kind of more mobile guys. Naismith will try and link the game, and whereas Griffiths will try and get himself in the box, even though he's become a link player. Um, so if we're to play kind of a 4-4-2 in that version, then... Scott Brown has to be in the team with, with Stuart Armstrong and I think that would give us the best balance. Um, if we didn't have two little guys up front, I would rather we went with two out-and-out wingers rather than a big man, little man up front because I think our the national mentality is just go direct and get it forward and I think when the fans are shouting that from the side um, that feeds onto the field and then players start making decisions that they don't necessarily agree with because 50,000 people shouting at you when you need to win is probably it's not the most relaxing place to be in when you're playing so I think you know, the squad that Scotland have got if Andy Robertson was to play left back and Kieran Tierney was to play centre back I'd be, I'd be quite happy with that even though obviously Tierney is a, a very very good attacking left back if we maybe played Andy Robertson as a left winger instead of, of somebody else and Tierney behind him and I think that would also work I think those two guys have got a little bit more quality than some of the other players that we have but yeah, I look at the squad and I'm not really excited about it because I think there are 
there are so many guys in there who have had multiple opportunities and without wanting to be disrespectful have failed. If we're going to play a guy like Ryan Fraser, then great, we need to give him the ball, we need to let him run at people, we need to open the game up and be more expansive and give the guy space rather than ask our wingers to, to track back and protect fullbacks, which I think against Lithuania and Malta shouldn't be happening. Scotland should be able to play with four at the back and two in front and be able to contain attacks. Whether we're structured well enough to do that or whether the instructions are good enough to do that, I don't know. But we should be able to play with one clear unit of six to defend and before trying to play in the break after we win it back. But to try and attack with seven players and, and defend with three in transition because if Scott Brown sits in front of two centre-backs, we should be good enough to do that because we have the players at the international level who are better than the opponent. So we should be able to do that. So it's disappointing the squad that's been selected not surprising tactics that we we choose will be interesting to see because I think that there's a maybe a slight tendency to go with what was good against the big team which is never never ever the same as playing against a team who you should beat so I think Strachan was lucky in the sense that Lee Griffiths battered in two free kicks in the last five minutes because the performance against England was terrible there's no mm-hmm. two ways about it I think Slovenia we were we were okay we weren't great the, the disappointing thing for me is that not as a coach or an analyst, but as a supporter, is that there's no excitement for watching Scotland just now because it's the same faces, the same standard of performance that we're getting. And until two or three younger guys are introduced into the squad and told, just go for it, then I think supporters would accept that if we went out with a team of under-24s and, and we played really well uh, and we managed to win against Lithuania, then that would be just as acceptable as doing it with a team of older guys that we have now. But the preparation for the future, in my opinion, is more important because Slovakia showed that they were much better than us. I think when we beat Slovenia, going away to Slovenia is going to be difficult. Um, England will most likely run away with the group. So as much as it would be great to keep going for it, and I think we should keep going for it, I, should, I think that we should be going for it with a younger group of players. Ah, and I, th- I think that's that's sort of the, the almost like the catch-22 that we've been in is the fact that, personally, I would take us not qualifying for anything for about 10 years if it meant that we've actually started to lay groundwork. Basically, any national team should, you know, future planning, making sure you've got like a transition process, I mean, like you said, like identify a 22-year-old and a, a 26-year-old and blah, 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 you know, make sure you, you've always got that roadmap ahead of you. You know, I, w- I would happily take us not qualifying for 10 years if it meant that, that we've got that sort of thing implemented for the future, rather than just k- kind of being a bit like the Republic of Ireland, where you kind of, you qualify by playing awful football, and then you make an absolute arse of yourself when you're at the tournament, you know, <laughs> be, because because you get outplayed because you're crap, you know. Like I I don't I don't want that to happen. And when you look at some of the players that we've got available to us, we for years should have been playing better football than what we have been. We should have been taking the game to opposition, which it seems like we never do. It seems that we're we're always quite reactionary, which is risky when the team is set up in such a sort of shoddy way and individually we're probably not strong enough to let's say properly play on the counter you know because we can't do that because we always look susceptible to basically any sort of ball in the box and if like somebody like Grant Hanley's playing he, he just he panics he loses his mind and then bang suddenly there's Thomas Miller 1-0 you know I mean it's I, I don't know but and you mentioned Anya as well I mean my, my take on Anya is that he's 
he was good for a very specific amount of time. Because uh, when, when he first came into the team, and it's quite, it's quite sad actually, like when he first came into the team, that was the first pacey player we had seen in about 10 years. And, and and the fact that he gave us an out ball on the counter and stuff like that, like he actually he, he gave us an option to put the ball in behind. The way I look at Anya now is that he's basically he's Ryan Fraser that can't dribble and can't cross. So <laughs> what's 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 the point of him? You know, like you, you either you either play again. Like I, I think you can play a right wing back if we're playing a sort of back three back five system. But otherwise, no. Nah. And you look at our options at, at right back. Like you said, it's either going to be Anya. Uh, it looks like Anya Whitaker, and then you've obviously got Tierney as well. About four years ago. Me and my mate that I uh, go to basically all the games with, um, we used to play a game where we'd watch Whitaker and count the amount of times you get caught out of position because positionally is horrible. But I guess if, 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 if you're looking at our options, I mean, usually I suppose it would be Callum Patterson, but he's still on his way back from yeah. his, uh, his bad knee injury. I think if I was to pick anybody, it probably would be Tierney, to be honest. Like, if we're playing a flat back four, that is, um, I'd probably play Tierney right back again because he, he did well enough. It kind of cuts his legs off a bit attacking-wise because he always wants to stop and then cut inside. Blah, blah, blah. But I think he's, um, in a sense, I think he's young enough to get used to it, you know? Um, like, he hasn't had five, ten years of playing this position over and over again at, 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 at the highest level, you know, I mean, he's he's only I mean, he's only been the Celtic team for what, essentially two full seasons of, of which he's excelled, but yeah, and can I, can I go back to Tierney as well, I mean, you mentioned that you, you, you could see him playing playing at centre-back do you think that he's, his size could be a hindrance, and I'm kind of wary to say that, because you look back at players like Cannavaro and Ayala and stuff like that. You know, I mean, they, they were centre backs that were world class, and they were like five foot nine, five foot eight. You know, and like, but obviously, we're not saying that Tierney's going to be as good as them in terms of reading the game and, and defensively and stuff. But how important in general would would you say that physical size is related to being a centre back? I actually had this debate a few times. I think that the profile of a centre back now has changed because the game has changed, and I think if you were to put, say, Kieran Tierney playing centre back against Harry Kane. He would have to be really experienced and brilliant discipline-wise and how positioned he was to make sure that he cut off all of his angles to attack the ball. But a lot of teams aren't playing the ball in the sky anymore. A lot of teams aren't making the centre-back go and head things and kick things and just be a, a physical battler. So I think if teams are playing short passes into the feet of strikers and making a striker drop in and turn and things like that, then there is a strong possibility he would probably be a very, very good centre-back. Um, if he was to come up against somebody like Jan Collar, then you pick a specific player. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if he's going to be playing against a six-foot-seven specimen, a big, huge monster, then you probably can't do it unless you get somebody else to pick him up, man-mark him, and let Kieran Tierney um, pick up the space. And I think um, what's interesting, you mentioned about Akechi Anya a few years ago being you know, the first really quick player that we'd introduced into the squad in a few years was that um, last year I did the Football Hacks podcast with Johnny McFarlane and I was complaining that the lack of exceptional physical players that we have, whether it's through pure strength, we don't have any strikers who are so strong physically and so dominant physically, um, either for long balls and things like that, like Jan Collar was. We've never had one of them. We don't have somebody like even a Theo Walcott or a Gareth Bale who's so rapid and so quick that it worries the opponent for when they lose the ball that you can just play the ball into space and they'll just run after it and take up the park. Obviously, they have to be technically good enough to actually make the difference. But to have a guy like Gareth Bale would make 
a huge amount of difference just to be able to run away from teams. And we haven't even we haven't got a guy even like say an Usman Dembele, who if you take away the pace and everything else, a guy who's just exceptional in even one v two situations who can eliminate a couple of players, dribble by them and, and make an opening. We haven't had anybody of of you know, who's going to give you a qualitative superiority in terms of ability with the ball or a superiority in terms physically, as in strength-wise or speed-wise. We haven't produced anybody who's so incredibly intelligent who just drifts away from people and finds pockets that everybody finds them. If you look at, you know, a lot of mid-level Central European teams, they've got a special type of player. If you look at Switzerland, we don't have a Shaqiri. Um, If you look at Macedonia, we didn't ever have a Goran Pandev. Um, you look at Iceland, we don't have a Gilfie Sigurdsson. So a lot of these teams have got a really, really special player that we we have a lot of, I would say good players, but guys who don't stick out for one incredibly good reason. And I think that that is a, another disappointing thing because we don't have, we have to have the best game plan, the best tactical training, the most intelligent group of players who have got the best system. Uh, and make sure the team selection is perfect and the substitutions are perfect because we don't really have a player who can dig you out of a hole. And I think even if you look at back at previous generations of maybe Bulgaria in the 1994 World Cup, they had a bunch of really good technical players. But Stoichkov would, would batter them in a goal from somewhere or Romania had a Haji. When we look over the last 20 or 30 years, when was the last time there's been an iconic Scottish player? I can't think of any. I think there have been a lot of really good players, but if you were to go abroad... And like I've lived abroad for five years, nearly six years. Nobody's mentioned a really iconic Scottish player. We've all been, you know, the stereotypical, hard to beat, passionate, dogged, resilient, determined people and determined players. But we've never had somebody with a standout skill set which will take us from being a, a reasonably good team into a team who can do damage against the big teams. Like Poland, if you take a lot of their players, they're still a good team. But boom, Robert Lewandowski elevates them. Previous generations have had that. And I think even, you know, when you look back at Slovenia when they first qualified for Euro 2000, it's Zlatko Zajovic, who was basically like an Eastern European version of Zidane. So a lot of these nations have had a special player. Like I lived in Switzerland for the best part of two years and kind of tried to study as much about the Swiss system. Their immigration or the amount of refugees and people they take in for asylum and that sort of thing actually helps them because they have a more of a multicultural society, which means that they've got different cultures playing together, which kind of makes the game change a little bit. So I think because Scotland could be more multicultural in the future, I think that will also help us. So I know I've went off on a bit of a tangent, but there are a lot of different ways where where we, we have to improve, but th- the problems are going to be there. And unless we get after Gordon's track, in which I know we'd, we'd touched on earlier on, and the possibilities of who do you get internally, like in the SPL, would Brendan Rodgers fancy it? Probably not. So would Derek McInnes fancy it? Maybe, but maybe not right now. Maybe he'd fancy trying his luck in the Premiership or top-end Championship. Pedro Cachina, we're not even sure if he's any good. He might be all right. <laughs> Let's be honest, we're not sure if the guy's any good. I was excited. I thought, all right, great. A, a guy completely left field coming in, speaking a wee Aye. bit differently, wanting to speak about tactics, thinking, fantastic. Then they get beat off a team from Luxembourg. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I'm not having it. I'm not having it, Pedro. You've got to now win everybody over. Um, Tommy Wright, I'm really sorry, but you're not getting him. He's got to stay at St Johnston for the rest of his life. We've already <laughs> chained him. Steve Brown needs to give him a 50-year contract. We'll bury him underneath the pitch because he's a legend. Um, as much as I criticise the 
the generally terrible football that we play. St Johnston normally bob around relegation and now we're in Europe every year and we've won the Scottish Cup. Tommy Wright can do what he wants, so you're not getting him. So you look in the league, not really interested in anybody else. Alan Archibald, maybe finally McCulloch, we'll see how he gets on at Kilmarnock, I think, potentially, because of the stature and the way he is. I think that there's, I think that he might be a, a really, really good manager. If we look at who's left Scotland in the recent past, Robbie Nielsen done a really good job at Hearts. He took a bunch of really young guys out of the Championship, scored a lot of goals. He played to their strengths. He made a system. I think there was a high level of camaraderie among the squad. So I think Robbie Nielsen is a potential Scotland manager I'd be all for. I think the year that Tommy Wright got manager of the year, I'd probably given it to Robbie Nielsen when he finished third in the league. So there are potential guys who would do it, but the guys that we're looking potentially are younger guys. So... If none of them are ready for it, people say, then we have to look abroad. And I, I think Lars Lagerback would have been a really, really interesting sign. And I think when it was, he was spoken about a few times, I think he did the Nigeria job after, before going to, to Iceland and doing really well. But he'd, he'd arguably have been perfect. I mean, he's he's the England scalper. You know, he's never he's Aye. never lost against him. You know, I mean, that would have been perfect, especially for this group. But no, nah, we we let it slide and just say, nah, we'll, we'll stick with Strack and kind of bury our head in the sand, hope everything works out all right. But, oh well. Aye, I th- I think one of the problems in Scottish society is that we would always rather have somebody who's got a wee bit of experience in that area and knows what's been going on, rather than take somebody exp- with fresh ex- experience. Experienced, experienced in what? You know, I mean, experienced in rubbish, experienced in failure, experienced in not being good enough. You know, I mean, like you're saying, like it's probably better to go a bit left field and try something new. Because I mean, what's the whole quote about the definition of insanity? You know, like trying trying the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results. I mean, that that feels like what uh, what Scotland's been for the best part of a decade now. You know, because because when you go back to like when what you were saying about like we've not had a standout player. I was thinking about that when you said it, and the two, rightly or wrongly, in terms of how the Tartan I probably look at it, the two players that were maybe standouts for us were. One, especially in the early part of his career, and I think this is wrong, was Darren Fletcher. And I think purely because he played for Man United, people yeah. expected far too much from him. I think when you combine that with the fact that uh, I think it was Bertie Votes made him captain when he was like 19, I think, I think that made a sort of perfect storm of like, oh, look, we've got this young guy for United, you know, and oh, he's a captain. Like, this guy's going to be our, our lord and saviour. Obviously, it didn't pan out that way. I think he's a brilliant player. I think he's really underrated. Probably, probably won't be appreciated properly by Scotland fans anyway until long after he's gone, I think. And the other one that is probably our biggest sort of wildcard player would be probably James McFadden. Yes. But I would, I would argue as as good as he was, I think he was a really good player. Again, I think maybe not by Scotland fans. Actually, if anything, he was a wee bit overrated by Scotland fans. But I think generally speaking, he was a bit underrated. He got a bit unlucky with injuries and stuff like that in the later part of his career. But and also that goal against France, I'm sorry, that should have been saved. I mean, it's it's a great strike. But I mean, I think the keeper should do better there. But I think in terms of McFadden's legacy, and also a bit gutted, he's two caps away from being in the Hall of Fame, and he never got them. He's been stuck on 48 forever, but there we go. But I, I think he was the X factor in a team of absolute averageness. You know, like there was, there was 
that's not even a word, but I mean, that's, that's the way to sum up that Scotland team that he was in. It was just average all over the pitch. You know, you're, you're looking at, I mean, that was a team like the Caldwells and stuff like that, you know, Nigel Quasi and all that. Like, you know, there was, there was like nothing, nothing going on apart from Faddy. He he was the one that was something a bit different. He was the one that that introduced the, the unexpected. You know, like the goal against the goal against France, and there was the, the nice interplay with with Fletcher for the goal against the Netherlands, stuff like that. And he he did have a few really really beautiful goals for Scotland. But was he really all that? I mean, you can't hold him up really, even compared to like Sigurdsson, like you mentioned. I'd, Sigurdsson's probably a, a much better player overall. We have oh, produced. You produce anything like that, you need you kind of wonder why you can uh, because you could hang it. This, this is a thing that you see, you see Strachan mentioning in press conferences sometimes, and it's how funnily enough you, you would almost think that Strachan might make a better director of football than he would be a manager because he keeps coming out and saying that oh, we, we've no, we've no produced uh, the way he puts it, we've no produced an athlete. You know, when, when you look at, and there's examples that you use, you look at Bale and you look at some, even somebody like Oxley chamberlain for England, you know, I mean, like, we've not really produced anything like that, apart from Burke. But then you're thinking, does that really, in a sense, does that really count? Because he moved down south when he was like eight. Does that really count as a player that Scotland have produced? Um, when you look at Oliver Burke physically, I mean, he is insanely rapid and he's an absolute tank. Technically, there's maybe a wee bit it could be improved there but when you compare it to anything else in the squad there's nothing there's basically a bunch of just people at average height with average build and it seems to it, it feels like it's been that way for quite a while and uh, I mean obviously as, as a coach you, you, you know you can't impact on like genetics or whatever but I mean uh, how could that maybe have been improved over the last say 10-15 years I mean why hasn't there been anybody that's been a sort of physical specimen I think like it was interesting that you mentioned like the Scotland squad with James McFadden and like I remember that team and thinking right if this team was to sit and defend I think Walter Smith and Alec McLeish had it right the players that they had in that squad were perfectly set up to sit and defend and hit teams on the break they were really good at it if you look at the the two called those Gary's really good in the ball Stephen's really good at defending the box and being a, a leader around the zone around the zone around the penalty box and I think that's necessary right now. Like, if we were to take Gary Caldwell and Steve Caldwell and put them in that Scotland squad when they were at their peak, that would, you know, do you know how much that would improve the team now? Like, aye, aye. Something as simple as having a Steve and a Gary Caldwell in that team now would make us a much, much better team. People will scoff, but that's the reality of it right now. And that team I mean, there, we they could, were we competing. Could do a McManus. We could do a McManus, never mind one of the Caldwells, you know what I mean? And like, he wasn't anything special, but it's better than what we've got now. Exactly. So that that team was a better team than what we have now. And I think when we had a, a little bit of an X factor in McFadden, you had Chris Boyd at the time was an unbelievable finisher. And if you wanted him to come in, we had Lee McCulloch as a wide target man coming in from the left-hand side. Something really different that not many national teams have now, like a, a basically a target man coming from the left-hand side. So if you have Alan Hutton rampaging down the right and firing balls in the box. Lee McCulloch's going to beat every single fullback for a high ball. Then you've got boys like Chris Boy, James McFadden hanging around the, the middle of the box that are going to score. So we had a really, really dangerous team then. And when they sat in around the box and they played really direct and they played to their strengths, they could beat a lot of teams. I think we beat France. We, we, we competed really well with Italy. We beat Ukraine when they were a really good side at the time. So that Scotland squad with, with the Caldwells, Alan Hutton... McCulloch, Boyd, McFadden, I think even like a young James McFadden, maybe Barry Ferguson was in the squad at the time. That was a much, much better team than what we have now. So the problem becomes what was done wrong for the last 
10 or 15 years. I think talent integration is a problem in Scottish football. I think it was interesting reading Billy Reid's comments because Billy Reid was a highly regarded coach and manager in Scotland with Hamilton and a few other clubs who now works in Sweden. He's saying Scottish football is miles behind everybody else now because he's out of the bubble and reassessing it. And I think that's a, it's an important thing that if you're in the Scottish football bubble, you're maybe no experience in different things to actually go, hold on a minute, we need to think in a different way. Now, that's not to say people in Scotland aren't they thinking in a different way. I know from a few things that I had going on in the summer, people are thinking a different way and trying to make it work, but finances are an issue for a lot of clubs or the, the reinvestment of what money that they have. Maybe instead of signing two squad players, you sign four support staff. Uh, maybe that would make your team better. So not all you know, clubs are, are able to do that or maybe not all of the, the higher-ups in the clubs are able to see what the, the benefit to that would be where sometimes a manager goes, I need a squad of 18 boys and I'll supplement it with, with kids. So there are people looking differently in Scotland. One thing which I think is a big thing was when Mark Votta turned up in Scotland, the performance goals were a big, big thing. Um, the identification of talent bringing them through in each four-year cycle and bringing in a new group of kids every year or every two years, I think it is, I'm not entirely sure. Now we see at youth level, the teams are much better. Like Scotland under-20s beat Brazil in the Toulon tournament. Now I know it's, you can't say Scotland are better than Brazil under-20s, but the fact that we're competing with them and able to beat them, Greg Taylor from Kilmarnock scored the winner against them, and he's been given first-team minutes over the last two years. There are players coming through now who are better than what the last generation had, thankfully. But the biggest issue becomes, does the first team manager, does the club give them the opportunities to actually play? The first thing is they need minutes on the field. The second thing they need is time in the gym to make themselves physically faster, stronger, more robust and live their lives to a more professional standard. Now, that's not to say that they don't, but some footballers go out in the, go out in the bevy quite often. Um maybe don't eat as healthy as they should do because their bodies don't change that much. They're maintaining it instead of enhancing their fitness. So I think the next generation of players from the performance skills, and I know from speaking to different people in the SFA, there's a lot of good work going on now, which will make sure that hopefully in the next generation of players, and I don't talk about the next generation in 20 years, I'm talking the next between five and ten years, that there will be another filter of really, really talented kids coming through, whether it's at Celtic or Aberdeen or Rangers or Hibs or Hearts or whoever. The performance goals are helping bring the players through. And I think the next phase is the integration of talent from 16 years old to 21 years old and making sure that by the time you're 20, you've had at least 200 games. So by the time you've played 200 games, you've maybe started to knock on the national team door. So if we take maybe Harry Cochran of Hearts, who, who Cathro gave some games to in pre-season, he scored a couple, I think. There's one to bring through. Maybe there's one for us to assess, and maybe does Craig Levine give him more games in the, in the Hearts first team? Because what use is it playing a guy who, 32 maybe, in, in Hearts' first team, where you could play a 16, 17-year-old? Which one's going to have a resale value? Hearts might get £4 million, say, for Harry Cochran by giving him 200 games. You might lose a few games playing him, but you might win a lot of games playing him as well. Whereas you're going to win and lose games irrespective of you play a guy who's slightly more experienced, experienced and playing maybe 400 matches. But you can develop these players to reinvest money in Scottish football so that we can we can make more money to maybe have Celtic buy them from the money that they make from the Champions League. So if Hibs sell John McGinn for, say, two million to Celtic, Celtic develop him, put them in the Champions League, Hibs get money, do they reinvest it in the Youth Academy like they did when they sold five of the young ones at the same time, like Scott Brown, uh, Gary O'Connor, Derek Rard, and Tom McManus, I think Ivan Sproul, all at the same time? 
my feeling just now is like I'm underwhelmed by looking at the squad because the amount of times as a Scotland supporter you're you're really really excited and then you get let down. I think that the next generation is one that excites me because there's a lot of young guys that are showing a good level of ability and I really really hope Ryan Gold kicks on this season in Portugal because I know he played well at the weekend and if he is given in our 20 games this season and plays really well maybe he's in the Scotland squad by Christmas and then if he's in the Scotland squad maybe he becomes that really creative central midfield player that we're screaming out for because we have a lot of other types of profiles but we don't have that really clever creative midfielder coming from wide coming from number 10 who unlocks the, a low block that we've, we've not had for a, a while maybe since Fadden for being able to eliminate people and do things like that so I think just now I'm underwhelmed by the Scotland squad purely because the guys we've had have tried their hardest they've been good players but they've just not quite got over the line for various reasons not always their own fault sometimes substitutions and squad selections but I think the next generation is one that excites me because there's a lot of talent available if half of them get opportunities and a quarter of them make, them make themselves available for the Scotland squad and get into it and make it better then then I think we'll be able to compete again with the biggest teams because that's what Scotland needs to be doing. Aye, and uh, I, th- I think it's actually interesting what you said about Gond there as well. Um, I think his, as much as he's not played a lot of top-flight football, obviously, or, you know, uh, actual top-level football that isn't reserves or whatever, I think his development from being a little number 10, everybody remembers the very unhelpful mini Messi tag that he got. He, he's developed into a sort of a number eight now, more of a sort of... Uh, Gundogan sort of player where he's and I, th- I think I think that's the sort of player that, that we as in Scotland need uh, more than anything else in, in the midfield anyway you know we don't have that sort of deep lying quality and again kind of like I was saying earlier that was what Bannon looked like he could have been and then it just hasn't panned out that way. So hopefully, like you said, hopefully Gold does get more games uh, this season on loan um, because we know via Tiago he, d- he did really well. Tiago Estevez, anybody wants to look him up on Twitter, he, he did really well at the weekend there. Uh, that was his first start for uh, Desportivo Aves. So hopefully he gets more. One of the last points I wanted to bring up was that the team, uh, or Scotland, are, are due to play on an artificial surface in Lithuania. Uh, how might this impact on the match preparations, do you think? And is the difference in surface as huge as it's made out to be? Because you see Strachan himself has came out and basically derided the fact that there's a lot of talk that artificial surfaces lead to more injuries. And he's he's just basically said that's a myth. Um, what's your take on it and how might it, how might it impact on preparations as a whole? I think one of the biggest problems you've got is the bounce of the ball. Um, so things like punts, they bounce higher and further. So things like goalkeeper clearances that are allowed to bounce cause you problems. But I would say most of these guys, well, if they haven't grown up playing an Arsenal Tough, they'll play on it fairly regularly. Like It's not something they won't have at training occasionally, um, especially in winter. A lot of the guys who maybe play uh, in Scotland will have played on Arsenal Turfs at Torrey Glen and places like that or at Orium. So it's not like it's a new thing. They'll all have played on it. They'll all be prepared for it. They'll understand how the, the training load differs between playing on a harder surface. But if you're playing a FIFA World Cup qualifier or a European Championship qualifier on an AstroTurf, it's going to be like a 5G, really spongy, really high quality AstroTurf. And it's not going to be like, you know, Paul Parker used to say, say to me, like Monaco's playing in a car park and the, the pitch is just horrible. So would you rather play in an AstroTurf where it's really flat and you know what is going to happen, or a squidgy McDermott Park in the middle of January. I don't think 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't. I, what's better? Obviously, playing on Arsenal turf because you can play proper football on it. So, you you can get a really horrible pitch, or you can have a really really nice pitch. I think a really really nice pitch is obviously going to be better. Is it just because it's no real grass and it's no real soil? The standard Arsenal turfs today are so so good that in a lot of cases they're better than grass pitches. So, I think Scotland's one of these countries who's got enough Arsenal turfs, but we still complain that our national team would have to play on one. Loads of countries in Europe are freezing cold. Horrible winners. You're going to have to play an AstroTurf. Iceland have probably got more AstroTurfs than anybody else in the world, and they're doing all right. They don't complain if they've been playing in the Icelandic top division when they're younger and going to play on grass on a trial match. So I, I, I genuinely think it's just setting up excuses in case something goes wrong before anything happens. But if Strachan's coming out and saying, no, it's fine, get on with it, then, then I think that's a good approach to take. Aye, and one of the one of the more, I suppose, interesting comments I, I found from Strachan was that he was saying that kind of what you were alluding to there was that a lot of professional teams up here in Scotland use artificial pitches, and he was saying he was saying that that you know oh well the players that we've called up for up here you know, they'll be used to playing on that sort of surface, but then I got thinking oh you've not really called up that many though. I mean, what you've called up, you've, you've called up the Celtic ones, and then what a couple of your hibs, and that's it. I mean, I mean, if you'd, if you'd called up like Adam Frizzle, Greg Taylor, Gordon Greer, and Chris Boyd, just as four names for Kilmarnock, they play on <laughs> it every home game. So, Aye. if 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 the pitch is that big an issue, maybe you call up players who play on that pitch. So, <laughs> exactly. Do you know what Aye. I mean? Like, it's like if you're if you're playing away to Bolivia. You maybe pick play pick players who play at high altitude all the time, so that when they go away to Bolivia and play against them, the altitude sickness doesn't become a huge issue. So, I think there's a little bit about preparation, but at the same time, like I, I, England's just as cold as Scotland, and for four months of the year, five months of the year, and a lot of the clubs will have un, not underground but indoor training facilities. They'll have some sort of dome or some sort of indoor, indoor training grounds where there's an astroturf inside it, and they'll train in there maybe a couple of days a week. So I don't think it's something which, you know, if you're playing an English Premiership team and you're looking at this new fangled plastic pitch, it's nothing new. They've grown up playing on them. The guys in the squad are only all 40, 45. I think the oldest guy in the squad's maybe 33. So it's no something which they haven't experienced before. They'll all have played a, a Champions League game or a Europa League game or some sort of friendly match on an AstroTurf. They'll have probably played a World Cup qualifier or a European Championship qualifier for Scotland on an AstroTurf somewhere at some point. I don't think it's that big a deal that people make it out to be. I, th- I think it slightly smacks of maybe getting some excuses in early, you know? I almost like, you know, if, if we lose because a big fucking long ball comes and bounces over Craig Gordon Seeds into the net, the, you know, you know Shacking can come in and say, I told you, I told you, you know? Um, but, oh, well, we'll see. Um, I, I suppose we're coming to the end of this, um, but one of the last things I'll ask is, are, are you familiar with Lithuania at all? Um, not necessarily Lithuanian football in general, but in terms of how their national team plays, um, obviously in years gone by, we had a lot of players at Hearts who there's actually a couple of hips just now as well, in, including uh, Slivka, who I, I was really I was really impressed with him in the first leg. At the time, he he was on loan somewhere, I can't remember where, but he was on the books at Juventus, like like a lot of players, but he, he looked like a very promising young young playmaker. He's got a lovely touch, and he, in a lot of instances, he caused us a lot of problems because he, he loves to move between the lines and find space, and we just weren't 
picking him up at all. He was a lot of the game went through him, and I think he can pose his problems. And he, he's he's had a decent start to his Hibs career since he moved there in the summer. Um, but beyond that, do you know much about the players or how they might how they might play? Um, I can I can only tell you a little bit, like from what St Johnston when they played Trakai, and Tommy Wright had said that obviously the Lithuanian players would be technically better than than the Scottish players because their their weather is better. Um, which Olympian has a has a seven month winter in Scotland has a three or four month winter. So, so yeah, if we're if we're to believe what Tommy Wright, the legend, says that technically they're going to be superior to us, they're going to understand how to play the game a little bit better. But no, like we played them already. We I'm pretty sure that the Scotland analysis staff will have done other work. The the coach have we got analysis have, staff because you know I, 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 you could have fooled me. Uh, no, they do. They do. I've spoken to a couple of guys. So yeah, I know. Like they will have done all their homework. They'll have analysed their opponent. They'll have looked at different players that they have available from different leagues across Europe, and a lot of the guys get exported. The the best players that have got in Lithuania, they'll know what the depth of the squad will be. They'll have done all their homework. They'll understand what Jankowskis, who used to play for Hearts in Porto, will ask of them. Um, from what I understand, he's actually done a really good job so far and got them quite a few points and made them a more dangerous team than what they have been over previous years. But I don't know enough about Lithuania to say what's going to happen. All I know is Scotland should be beating teams like Lithuania. And I know that that's... I, I criticise people for saying, well, Scotland should go away to... St Johnston should go away to FK Trakai and win. Well, we should. But the game has changed. Lots of teams have got better. Lots of teams have dropped off. Just because our players are more famous than theirs doesn't necessarily mean that we should win. But I think when you look at the squad we've got, it's a good enough squad to go away and beat teams from, from Lithuania and Malta. Without being disrespectful to them, we should be better than them. But if we get our tactics wrong and our substitutions wrong and we don't analyse the strategy during the match and make little adaptations to try and exploit space or however that is that they play, then the players at that level, they're all good enough to beat each other. It's like if you watch a Scottish Premier League team, there's not a huge gulf between, say, between say third and twelfth, there's no a massive gulf. Everybody can beat each other at international level. You've got the likes of Spain, Germany, Italy, Portugal, who will, in most cases, beat everybody because um, they have better players. But in the middle, the, the teams between say third and sixth in the pot, apart from the likes of you could say San Marino and Gibraltar, there's no a massive gulf anymore between the likes of Lithuania and Scotland, or Scotland and Slovenia, or. Scotland and even like the Faroe Islands, like all these teams, they've got so much better tactically, they're better set up, the players are fitter, the players are stronger, there's more um, support staff so that you can do your analysis and actually figure out exactly how you're going to play against somebody. Even though it's a game of 11v11, you can make a game of 4v3 and say, right, we're going to attack that space, we're going to defend that space, we're going to force it to here because we feel like there's some sort of equality in that zone and then we can make it a really small game. Whereas if we win that area of the field, then we can start our attacks or we can start our defensive process from there. So I think that even though we should be beating these teams, the games are a lot more difficult than people realise because everybody has so much information on each other that you can tell the players' preferences and the coaches' preferences and the structure of the team because you've been working on them for a while that... Unless it's a really surprising thing like Kieran Tierney playing right back or Scotland coming out and playing 5-4-1 because England had expected Scotland to come out and attack them the whole game in the last game. So unless you make a, like, a really big tactical surprise, I think that everybody will be suitably prepared and the players need to make sure that they perform their roles as well as they can because 
at every level of football nowadays, I know it's a cliche, but everybody can beat everybody. So if you're no prepared and you're no focused, you should be expecting to get beat. Aye, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, this is the team or the sort of team that we should be going out and beating. Aye, it's not as simple as that. But when you look at it on paper and when you look at the potential and how we could play, and that's that's probably the killer for me. Maybe I'm just being stupid and naive all these years. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't really have a club that I support. My team... It's like, who do you support? Scotland. That's my team. And I always look at the squads and the players, even though I'm on the end of the squad, I, I look at the the potential of how we could play if there was just that bit better coaching, you know, and there was even arguably just that bit better luck. We could be a really good team and we could be tournament regulars or at least knocking on the door of at least finishing second in the groups that we get. But we always contrive to find a way to um, just not do it. So hopefully our game against Lithuania coming up isn't another one of those nightmare moments. So the final very quick question I'll ask, because I know we need to wrap up soon here, is against Lithuania, how would you line up the team? I'd, I'd, I'd probably go kind of a four-two-three-one, four-four-two hybrid thing. I would have Andrew Robertson go down the left, Tierney on the right. Probably go with Russell Martin in centre half with Grant Hanley, largely because that's who's in the squad. Um, Craig Fowler actually wrote an interesting thing about a guy from Leeds called Liam Cooper who could be in the squad, given that we're screaming out for for people. Should be. So should be. So maybe we could play one of those two. Um, if not, maybe try Darren Fletcher at centre back because I think it would give us a wee bit of protection positionally um, and he's better with the ball so maybe that would be something I, I might think about trying but That's a good depends, on the mag- depends on the mag- magnitude of the game uh, centre midfield I would have Stuart Armstrong playing next to Scott Brown the two wingers I'd probably go with Ryan Fraser and James Forrest I think Ryan Fraser on the left and Forrest on the right Forrest did a, a reasonably good job for Celtic recently especially as a centre forward so try to ask him to hold his position outside Ryan Fraser to be more dynamic and then I'd go with Lee Griffiths with Stephen Naismith just sitting off behind him problem with that is that I really like Robert Snodgrass but I don't think he's played enough minutes recently I like Matt Phillips but at the same time I think I would prefer Ryan Fraser at the start and see if, if that doesn't work then try Matt Phillips Matt Ritchie's done reasonably well for Scotland but I, I think that he goes anonymous for a long period of the game then then has a, a, a really strong flurry of activity for 15 minutes then goes anonymous again a little bit so um, yeah I try, I try and keep the base of Brown and Armstrong together have Brown kind of sitting and Armstrong roaming around and go and try to go box to box with Naismith try to connect the game from further up the field and then have the wingers really high really extreme and then that allows kind of Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson a little bit more space to develop the game from deeper positions and, and try and play through the line so yeah I think based on the squad that we've got I think that that's probably the best team we've got I, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's how Strachan will go but it's underwhelming like there's there's no much excitement there's no many changes you can make but it's one of those things like we've if we if we try the problem is in these big games is if you try something drastically new and you get beat you get slaughtered for it. So as a coach you can only approach it with a kind of a safety first mentality and and make little tweaks to what you ask the players to do rather than make radical changes. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably go with some reasonably safe lineup and and make sure that Griffiths gets enough supply, Stuart Armstrong's given enough space and. And Naismith's given some freedom to go and get on the ball and, and create things because he's a clever player between the lines and try and use our four quickest players and put them on the outside and, and try and attack 2v2 against their fullbacks and wingers and see if we can if we can try and overload through Armstrong and Naismith. But yeah. 
I, I couldn't really argue too much with that, that team, to be honest. Uh, even though we know it'll be Chris Martin and Grant Hanley up front, probably. But oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, I, I do like the idea of, of keeping Brown and Armstrong together, uh, so long as Brown sort of keeps it together. I mean, there was a hilarious moment in the in the Slovenia game at home where he somehow ended up on the left wing and then was doing step overs and lost the ball. So uh, <laughs> so long as so, so long as he sort of stops doing that kind of thing, then I think, I think we've, we've got a decent chance there. Um, aye, right. So I guess we'd we'd better wrap this up. Uh, Stevie, do you want to plug your your Twitter website or that sort of thing? I put out some really sarcastic analytical videos of the Arsenal game yesterday. So if you go on my Twitter, brilliant, brilliant. At, at Stevie Grieve, they are they were supposed to be serious analysis things, but after about three videos, I ended up raging, <laughs> which you can probably tell. Um, and if you want to get in touch about tactical analysis stuff, then I have a consultancy for helping coaches who who want to become better analysts and also coaches. So, yeah, if you want, get in touch. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, uh, there's also me, Grant Gendo. You can follow me at Oddnedge, which is Gendo backwards. I hate the fact that at Gendo has been taken by a guy who hasn't tweeted since 2008. But, I mean, that's that's how it goes. Uh, so that's at O-D-N-E-J. You also follow World Football Index at World Football I, worldfootballindex.com. Uh, there's the Patreon. Look us up on Patreon if you want to support us. Keep the lights switched on. And uh, I will catch you next time. Come on, Scotland. <laughs>